Hello, Texans, and welcome to the show that takes you inside NRG Stadium. It's Texans All Access. Like the man said, I'm Mark Vandermeer. And joining me tonight is John McClain from the Houston Chronicle. We will also hear tonight from Buddy Howell. Johnny and I talked to him a while back, but Drew Doherty caught up with him, so we'll hear that. And it's good stuff from Drew. I almost said Uncle Drew, which reminds me of that basketball movie that was out last year that my kids saw and I watched part of that was entertaining with Kyrie Irving and a bunch of players acting like older people. You had to be there. Anyway, we will talk to Buddy Howell. Drew will. And we'll have that for you in segment three tonight. He's one of those guys that's really interesting to me because he's a special teams specialist, but he also plays running back. But he's got a great perspective of things, and he knows his job description with this squad. And a little bit later on as well, I'll share my thoughts on the tweet of the week. Not what you might think from D.P. Sidhu, likes and stuff. She does that social media mini program. No, not that. Just something that made me feel good about this team. All right. Let's get to it. The general, John McClain. John, well, I would say a lot is going on. Is a lot going on. We've had some news. We've had some non-news, I guess, but the team's still without a general manager, and there's been a lot of discussion from outside the building where this team is headed. We've talked about it here, where this team is headed, what the inventory is. I went over that this week, how things are going, and you and I have not had a chance to really be on the air long form since the news broke last Friday about the Texans no longer pursuing Nick Casario as a general manager candidate. Unless they were to trade for him or unless they were to get him next year when his contract expires after the draft. But so many things can happen between now and then, as you know. I've been writing for 10 days now. The current management structure is what I think they will stick with. That would be Bill O'Brien over personnel. Mm -hmm. He would work closely with the 23-person personnel staff led by Matt Bazirgan and uh and then of course uh Rob Kiesel and James Lipford, director of pro personnel and college scouting. And Jack Easterby could handle all of football ops. That's everything else that comes under the football umbrella. He can do that for O'Brien because you can't do everything when you're the head coach. Chris Olson continued to do contracts in the cap. And Jamie Roots, of course, would handle the administrative side. And then Cal McNair would uh, sign off. And he's like his dad always did on big deals. I think the last thing Bob did, substantial, before he started his last battle with cancer, was when they signed Tyron Matthews. One year, $7 million, and Bob always signed off on things. McNair's have never let money stand in the way of trying to do what's best for the team to win. So a lot of people have problem with that, and uh, and and but I think I'm, I know that's what they're going to do and see how it works out. It may work out great, might not. Nobody knows for sure, but uh, it it uh, that's the way it's going to be, so people should give it a chance. Well, I, I think you bring up some interesting points, and without a definitive statement from the Texans on this, let's just go down this road for a moment. Like we said last Friday night, we did have you on the air. So as I said, we haven't talked. We actually talked a little bit after the story broke, so I appreciate that. But they do have that team of management in place, that football operations crew in place to handle whatever comes up or if they want to make a deal. Whatever they want to do, they can do it with those guys. I think it gets... More interesting if they go into draft season like this, but we'll take it one step at a time. I just find it interesting from the outside looking in. You have two candidates that were interviewed. They wanted to interview Casario. They backed away from that. 
it's really not a very large pool of individuals you can choose from for general manager anyway. And the other thing is you never know what's out there that they're not getting permission to interview either. So we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. This is our best guess sometimes. Well, I'll say this. This is exactly what's going to happen, what I just said. (laughs) They're not reaching out to anybody. I'm curious to see if they have or will make an offer to the Patriots for Casario. Like, they're not going to give up a one or two, offer a three. I think they're going to get multiple threes because Mm -hmm. of compensatory picks, possibly an extra two for Kareem Jackson. And Tyron Matthew, that would give them three, trade their three and a five, see if the Patriots bid on it. Uh, the, the key here is Jack Easterby. He just spent six years with the Patriots, and he did a lot of things for Bill Belichick. Belichick had him in evaluations. He trusted him. He really liked the way he'd grown in the organization. They offered him a new contract, but it was going to be for the same position where other teams like the Texans, the Dolphins, the Panthers, among others, were after him, and and the Texans paid a good amount of money to get him to come here, but they give him more authority. If I'm Jack Easterby and I want to be like, say, uh, run football operations or eventually be a general manager, whatever his ambitions are, I don't stay there. There's too many people between that goal. But if he comes here and he works closely with Bill O'Brien and they – and they answer to Cal McNair, he gets to do a lot of things for O'Brien because the head coach can't handle the medical, the training, the nutrition, and, and the equi- everything that goes under football mm-hmm. operations. No head coach does that. Bill Belichick relies on people like Jack Easterby, like Nick Casario. So this would be a better situation for him. I was told by a friend of mine who covers the Patriots that James Lipford, the college personnel director who'd been with the Patriots, he is the reason, he's the one that uh, he knew Easterby from working with him. O'Brien never worked with him. I'm sure O'Brien, because he's good friends with Belichick and and Belichick and Casario, probably heard Easterby through the last few years because they talk a lot, was really good at what he did. And uh, so he's here. He's got growing influence in the organization. People that I every time I Google the story on him, they were all glowing. Yeah, didn't matter who 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 wrote it. It was about players, people, and organization. During Super Bowl week, he got a lot of attention. Everything was positive. Now there's some bitterness coming out in anonymous quotes from New England. But if there was a lot of bitterness on the part, say Robert Kraft, why would he have invited him to his home mm-hmm. for the ring ceremony? So obviously there, the bitterness wasn't as bad as a lot of people are trying to portray it. And uh, well, so, here's the other thing, John: I, you don't complain about somebody leaving that you wanted to leave. If you wanted him to go, or if you're okay with him going, you're like, all right, <laughs> great. But if you're bitter, very often it's because you wanted them to stay and you feel like they should have been part of it. And they did They did offer him a new contract, and we turned him down. He came here. They still brought him back for the ring ceremony. So he's the one I'm going to watch the closest. They said that uh, Jack would he, – he's an athlete in college and uh, that he's, he's got his hands in a lot of different things. And one of them, he liked to jump in on scout team drills and – and uh, Nick Casario helps coach the offense up there, specifically the quarterback. So uh, I can't wait to see how it's going to fit in here. And when the Texans come back for training camp and he's out there, everybody's going to be watching Jack Easterby because to, to, he's new. 
Right. And he's in. He's been in the news a lot. And I do not believe there will be another general manager here, unless it's Nick Casario who worked out with the trade. Well, I've met with Jack several times, and I heard him speak to partners uh, on one occasion, and he was amazing. I mean, he's an amazing speaker, and I think people have read about that, and there's some stuff online about that. And I don't know what's going to happen, really. I can't confirm anything, but I can, t- I can tell you this. There's something about the guy. So I think no matter what he's involved in, he could be involved in retail sales somewhere. I think he would make a difference for that organization. So I think he's one of these people that can read situations. He knows people. He can motivate people. And we'll see how it goes. I think it's exciting. It's interesting. It's different. And as you and I always like to point out, there's a team in place here to do business on and off the field in 2019. So we'll see how it goes. They've been working on the draft here since the last draft. I was asked on 610, well, who's going to do this? I said, they're already doing that. They got a director of player personnel who worked under the general manager, Mm -hmm. and he oversees it. They're already way ahead on college prospects as well as possible free agents who don't re-sign next year. Well, you mentioned Lipford. You mentioned Lipford. I mean, who do you think, even when Brian Gain was here, who do you think books the flights for the scouts to go wherever? I mean, that stuff is taken care of at levels lower than that. And there's an organizational process. Now, it could be tweaked, improved, whatever, but it's not like it's not going to happen, to your point. The difference is who the answer to. Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, Brian Gain worked closely with O'Brien, and they didn't make Bill take players. Bill controls the game day roster. If he said, Bill, you're going to take this guy even though you don't want him, think Bill's going to play the guy? No. Good general managers make sure they get the players that their coaches uh, like. Mm-hmm. If if you if you have a big difference, you should pass that guy up. You need to both have – you may disagree on the guy's strengths and weaknesses, but if he fits what you want to do and you agree, bring him in here, and that's the way they did it, and that's the way they'll continue to do it. And they have people underneath them to keep up with the waiver wire, free agents that are still available when guys get hurt, who they're going to bring in. Um, and I wish Brian Gain all the best. I think he'll get a job in personnel. Not sure when, but I believe he will. And uh, and I'm eager to see how this management team is going to function based on the way they have since the franchise was uh, uh, awarded here. And they started with Charlie Casserly before what? When Charlie get hired? 2000. He yeah, was on way the before. job a couple of years before that. So uh, just because you don't have a guy, general manager, entitled people have the responsibilities. Absolutely, John. When people ask you about Clowney, what's your response and how this might be affecting that situation? Absolutely no effect whatsoever. I've been saying since he turned down a contract offer last year that he would play under the franchise tag. I do not believe any different. I think he'll play under the franchise tag. Hopefully he'll have a great year as a pass rusher, and that'll help him make more money. You know, Jadeveon is not going to, I don't think, will get the kind of money the guys who have double-digit sacks every year get until he starts doing that. So keep him from the franchise tag for two years if they want. Could trade him next year. Could keep him two years and trade him. All I know is there's not going to be a third franchise tag for anybody because it's the quarterback money. And uh, and I think it's good for him to come in here because, say, he got 15 sacks all of a sudden. Right. And it's going to cost a lot more to keep him. Absolutely. John, 
Side note here on the franchise tag. A lot of fans, media, roll their eyes at the franchise tag. Oh, my gosh, the horror. So unfair to the player. Yet this was collectively bargained back in 2011. So what's your take on the franchise tag and where it might go in the next agreement? It will be again because it affects so few players. When the union is negotiating a new deal, the the guys that are doing the negotiations, they don't get in trouble. They don't hit women. They don't do things that the guys that get in trouble do. They don't care about the guys that do that. And really, it's a small segment. Yeah. Franchi- How many franchise tags affect the NFL when you figure 53 players, figure IR, practice squad, 63? That's say, ends up being like 70 to 75 per team. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Franchise tag affects what, like three or four a year, five maybe? So that's not going to be an issue. People think it is are crazy. They're not going to say, uh, we're not going to give give back, get you have four more OTAs, and the coaches have more time with us uh, just because you'll give us a franchise tag back. That's not the way it works. I am just completely shocked when players don't play under that tag. How can you put all that money back in the of coffers of the ego. team? Because they see this guy got a long-term deal and he got fifty million guaranteed, not mm-hmm. being asked to play for seventeen million, and um, a lot of it is ego. I don't know how you walk away that kind of money. Most don't. Right. Like I don't think for a minute Clowney's going to miss time. I think he'll come in here when the game. That's all those guys can do is withhold their services. Like Dante Robinson. Remember, he stayed out, and then Rick Smith said the next year, if you come in. Right. We won't tag you again. And then he was gone to Atlanta. And uh, I don't think I would ever give in on a player like that. And it, I've thought that Clowney is never going to get paid like Aaron Donald, Khalil Mack, maybe not even like Demarcus Lawrence and Frank Clark. Those guys averaged double-digit sacks for the last three years. Maybe like Trey Flowers. He got like $90 million. I can't remember what he got guaranteed from Detroit. But if he has a big year, a great year, then the price of doing business goes up. Absolutely goes up. It's going to be significant. All right, the general's going to stick around with us. Where do the Texans rank or stack up? How do they in the AFC as far as looking at potential projections of the performance this season? That's a lot of P's. We'll get to it all next on Texans Radio. Hanging out Thursday night here in the Hyundai Texans Radio studio. I almost broke into song. I'm so happy because the General John McClain is here from the Houston Chronicle. All right, General, let's go. AFC, we talked a bunch about the GM situation in the first act of this program, so uh, we're not really going to recap too much of that. In fact, by not too much, I mean zero. So let's get into some football stuff. John, when you talk about a team's projection for a year and how they might do very often we look at this entire 32-team field, and it gets kind of overwhelming to think about all those teams. Let's just break it down. I mean, all you're trying to do is be one of the top six in the AFC, whether it's wild card or division winner or whatever. You want to be one of the top six in the AFC. But I think you did league rankings. So what do you got here from the Chronicle from what you wrote this week? I did these rankings based on everybody being through with off-season programs mm-hmm. and and the teams that I have, I'll tell you where you mentioned AFC. I have ahead of the Texans, New England 1. I have Indianapolis 4, Kansas City 5, Chargers 6, and the Texans 11th. And so that would make them, what, 5th fifth fifth in AFC? And, um, and so I think that was because the schedule, 
I didn't right. pick record because the mm-hmm. schedule is just so hard. So we get Chargers, Patriots, Chiefs, Colts. Colts. So the Texans have been fifth, fifth in the AFC. Okay. So behind the Texans would be the Ravens. Yep. Behind the Steelers for sure. Everybody else. Everybody I have else. Like uh, Pittsburgh thirteen, Cleveland fourteen, Tennessee fifteen, Jacksonville sixteen, Baltimore seventeen. And other AFC at Oakland twenty one, Buffalo twenty two, Denver twenty three, since you asked, Jets twenty five, Miami twenty seven, Bengals twenty eight, and I have uh the worst that's all that's all the AFC. My three worst teams in the league, Arizona, Tampa, Washington, and then fourth worst is the Giants. So the bottom four are all NFC teams. Wow. Okay, so if the Texans are the fifth-best team in the AFC behind the Chargers, Pats, Chiefs, Colts. What do they all have in common? Let's see, quarterbacks. And who do they play? Each other. The Texans play all Texans those teams. Texans play all those teams. Yeah. And they, they play, play the, the Chiefs, the Chargers uh, on the road. They, of course, play the Colts home and home. They get the Patriots in Energy Stadium. That's rough. No doubt about rough. it. And it's not like the games that aren't that are any kind of walk. You've got Atlanta at home. You have Carolina. At New Orleans. That's you got to go to New Orleans to play Drew Brees. Gosh, I'm getting ill right now. I don't want to talk about this at all. Those no, seriously. first seven games, the quarterbacks they play, there's no break. Okay. There's no doubt that it's brutal. However, everybody in the AFC South has virtually the same thing, except for the two teams in the opposite divisions that uh, you're not playing. So... The fact that the Colts have to go to Pittsburgh is nice for the Texans, right? Because the Texans have to go to Baltimore, but the Colts are off to Pittsburgh, and that's no walk in the park. So that's pretty good. And then you look at the Titans and the Jags. Obviously, that's going to be a little bit different with the AFC North, but the Cleveland Browns, okay, they're going to play the Tennessee Titans. That's nice. Maybe the Browns can help you out right there. So, in other words, you have some games like that. Your AFC East opponent is yep. the New England Patriots. And you have to play at Kansas City and at Chargers, at the two best yeah. teams out there on the road. But, John, you said yourself, that Charger road trip to me. Did you see they sold out all their tickets? They had a big announcement yesterday. They put out a release that said they'd sold out. I don't know what's going to happen. I guarantee there will be 5,000 Texans fans in oh, L.A. Oh, at least. Yeah. They'll find a way. Houstonians relocated or people just traveling out to L.A. because it's a nice trip. Texans, great trip. They know they can go in there and, and make a lot of noise to help yeah. their team. I think that's going to be great. But there's one problem. What? Phillip Rivers. Yeah, Great that. pass rush. Mm. Keenan Allen. Melvin Gordon. Keenan Allen's tough. On. I like but Keenan Allen. if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. I hate that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather have a soft schedule. And and you know, Texans won at Dallas against Dallas last year. They beat Indy. And if you can be, win those get people oh, it's a terrible schedule, both those teams won playoff games. And and I do believe the Texans are gonna be better. I think the offensive line will be better. I'm not sure the secondary will be better. They got a lot of new people in there. It better be better. Mm-hmm. considering these quarterbacks. But I look, Mark, for Deshaun Watson. I've been telling people this on national radio shows. If he, if he, For fantasy players, if he accounted for 31 touchdowns, considering the limitations that he played with last year, including mm-hmm. second, third receivers missing 19 games, Miller missing two and a half, Foreman not doing anything with the protection problems, with his issues that contributed to the protection, and he still accounted for 31 touchdowns. I look for him to be in the 40s. 
In the 40s. In the 40s. Rushing and passing combined. Yeah. Now you I realize st- they've never passed for more than 30 to, or 29 oh, touchdowns. Oh, I think he's going to be in the 30s on touchdown I think he will passes. And I think he, I'm not going to say he's going to run for more than five. That's dangerous when they get down close and he starts running for the pylon like against the Cowboys. Yeah, he's got to stop that. And, um, but I think that Watson will be a legitimate MVP candidate. Now, after watching him in the offseason program, in shorts with nobody covering, just watching him deal with the players and the coaches, knowing and seeing how accurate he was, he reminds me so much of Warren Moon. And I think he's going to be a legitimate MVP candidate, and he's going to be a big-time fantasy player. And I think that uh, the Texans will have their best chance to go to a Super Bowl with him than Houston's ever had with any quarterback. Back to this division thing for a moment. The fact that the Texans have to play the AFC East and first place finish. And the AFC South is the toughest division in the NFL. It's got to be. Bottom. I mean, I, I think there's no question you had two playoff teams in each of the last two years. And you had three winning teams last year, the only division in football with three winning teams. That's tough stuff right there. You didn't have a real top-heavy team necessarily. The Texans won the division with 11 victories. But that's saying something when you have three winning teams. Anyway, the AFC East, I looked up some historical information. In the Brady-Belichick era, I like to throw this out there from time to time, everybody but the Patriots is under 500 overall in the AFC East. So the Patriots are the Patriots. I spent a lot of time researching that because (laughs) that seems like a no-brainer. Sorry. But when you look at the rankings, I was looking at records since then, since 01, and the Jets, Bills, and Dolphins are all 24th and lower you know, in, in the entire league aggregate record stat. So to me, it's just awful. The Patriots, do you say that the East is that bad because of the Patriots or the Patriots are that good because the East is so bad? I think it's a little bit of a well, chicken egg thing. Well, they beat everybody. But on the other hand, think of all the head coaches, the general managers, all the changes those other quarterbacks. three teams have had. Quarterbacks, of course. And the Patriots have capitalized on it. And the only time anybody really scared them was when Rex Ryan first got there and they went to the playoffs and they beat them in Foxborough. That was the only time anybody has really made them sweat from the AFC East. Back-to-back AFC Championship game appearances for the New York Jets with Mark Sanchez at quarterback. And they don't break through to go to a Super Bowl. And the rest is history. Rex really never panned out after that. All right, shifting gears a bit here on NFL.com. Maurice Jones-Drew ranks the running backs, and he's got Lamar Miller at 30th, 30th in the league. Come on. People around the NFL don't seem to respect Lamar at all. They kept talking before the draft. They have to get another running back. He averaged, what, four points? He had his highest average per carry since last year at Miami. He missed two and a half games. He couldn't catch the ball because he had to block. He's a really good receiver. Bill O'Brien said he liked to incorporate him more in the passing game. Well, a lot of that will have to do is pass protection good enough where they can send him out. Remember when they used to line him up wide, yep. put him in the slot, let him go in motion? They couldn't do that because he had to block. So um, I'm not saying he's in the top half of the running backs, but I don't certainly don't think that he's 30th. 4.6 yards per carry. 973 yards. All right, that's Had not he unbelievable. Not those two and a half games and he'd averaged 60 yards a game, that would have given him 120, 30, another 150, then he would have been 
up around 1100 and then people probably wouldn't have said a word. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they'd rank him a lot higher. But to me, when you look at 30th, that's just total disrespect. And I know everyone's going to ask, well, who are you taking out? Who are you taking out ahead of him? I think there are a lot of guys. I mean, look, I think James Conner is a really good player. But I think when you look at the reliability of Lamar Miller, he's so reliable. Um, and, and this year, he finally had some of those runs that you were really waiting for for a long time from him, like 97 yards against the Tennessee Titans on Monday Night Football. Um, James th- Conner had the, one of the two best offensive line coaches in the NFL, and Mike Munchak. He had a really good offensive line in front of him, and I guess they still do. And so does that have anything to do with a running back success? Yes, yeah, sometimes. I check that out, and I it think does think those people have ranked them, considered that at all. What about pro football focus saying that Texas had the 20th best offensive line in the NFL? Look, that's hardly stuff to throw a parade about. <laughs> but a lot of people saw that and said, wait a minute, I thought that doesn't fit the narrative. That doesn't fit the narrative that the line's not good enough. Now, no one's saying 20 is good enough, but it's a lot a better lot. than that's some people truth. thought. That's the truth. And I I don't know exactly what they're basing it on because I didn't see that. But uh, and and a lot of the sacks and the 132 knockdowns were Watson's fault. And he says, you know, people say I hold the ball too long till I throw the ball down the field and make a play, and then mm-hmm. they don't say anything. Well, Seth brought this up this morning because they were talking about this thing, and I think 12 or 14 sacks were determined to be Watson's fault, and then yet another I don't know double figures number where it was backs and tight ends fault and Seth is saying, well, you have the backs and tight ends in because you're blocking because you're helping out the line. Look, the, you have to go deeper into the analytics than, and he's, he makes a, a reasonable point, I suppose, but you can't prove that either because you could say there's blitz pickup. Running backs have to be able to pick up the blitz. I mean, the teams of the best O-lines have to be ready to for that. rid of the ball to the hot receiver on a blitz. Sometimes they send more than you can block. Five is not enough. And very often you have six because you do have a tight end or a back end to block. So it's really hard to evaluate these things. I just found that number interesting. Okay, a few other things to cover with you, General. In fact, I'm going to go retro on you. And people can't think about recent history, but what do the Patriots and the Rockets have in common? The Rockets and the Patriots. Think about that, and we'll have some more stuff as we go around the league here on Texans All Access. Mark Vandermeer and John McClain from the Houston Chronicle here in the Hyundai Texans Radio Studios, Texans All Access. And I, I gave a tease, a retro tease. A lot of people are confused. Go back to the 80s. What do the Rockets and the Patriots have in common? Now, when you hear the word Patriots, you think Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. No, I'm talking about the Patriot Pat logo on the helmet, the old Patriots, because what did the Rockets and the Patriots both do to the national sports fan that upset them? They prevented an all-time great matchup in a championship situation in their sport. For the Rockets, it was 1986 when they knocked off the Lakers, Ralph Sampson at the buzzer to win the Western Conference Finals and face an unbelievable Celtics team, depriving the nation, look, it was great here in Houston, but depriving the nation of Lakers-Celtics in the Finals Part 3. For the Patriots, it was knocking off Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins for their shot to take on the Chicago Bears in the 85-season Super Bowl. That would have been an epic Super Bowl. Uh, There's no way... The Bears probably win that game. But there's no way it's 46-10. to 10. The Patriots beat the Dolphins in the AFC Championship game. Remember, the Dolphins were the only team to beat the Bears that year, and everyone wanted to see and the matchup. the Bears would have lambasted them in the, in the 
You think so? so? Uh, that, at that point, at at uh, eight, the Associated Press has been having a bunch of us have covered NFL a long time, vote on a lot of things for the hundred year anniversary, and one of them was the most dominant team, and the most dominant team I've seen was eighty five Bears. I had Steelers, one of the Steelers teams from the 70s, Packers from the 60s, and that Bears team, we got a great running game, good enough passing game, but that defense, I've never seen anything like it, including the Steel Curtain. And uh, I think revenge, Buddy Ryan and Mike Ditka, mm. it would have been dangerous. They, I thought you were going to say they both had the number one pick, and um, and the Patriots took Kenneth Sims, and, they, and the Rockets took Ralph Sampson. Interesting. That's right. And Samson, injuries derailed that career. The Twin Towers, all of it. Oh, my gosh. And the Patriots screwed up left and right. They drafted Tony Eason in the 83 draft. How dare they? But he helped him go to the Super Bowl. He did. I'll tell you what. Crushed. The run they had to get there, winning three games on the road in the playoffs, which they were the first team to ever pull that off until the Steelers did it about 20 years later. But they were the first team to ever pull that off. Wild card, divisional round, and championship game on the road, but they got crushed they like a great. no gas left in the tank when they played the Super Bowl in New Orleans. They had nothing. It was controversial. at the John, this is why, one of the big reasons why I wanted to get into radio. There was a huge debate because Steve Grogan started something like six games that year when Eason got hurt or whatever, and he did really well. They won, and then they put Eason back in the saddle for the postseason. Now, they won those three games, like I said, with Eason, but the fans still weren't happy. Eason had, to the fans, had the shortest leash ever. Now, they passed on Marino, as did a lot of teams did. A lot of teams did that 83 draft, right? They could have had a shot at Marino, and they didn't take it. A lot of teams passed up Marino. There was rumors about drugs. He was stupid. He had a low wonderlick, and he fell right to the Dolphins, which is the best thing could happen to him. And him only going to one Super Bowl, a loss in his second season of 84 when he broke all the records that Peyton Manning is, and Drew Brees have broken. But I thought, sure, after his second season, we were going to see him in multiple Super Bowls, and we never saw him in another one. Well, you could have seen him against the Bears, but maybe that would have been another loss. He would have gone 0-2. I mean, Jim Kelly was another great quarterback that went 0-4 in the Super Bowls. You just yeah. never know how it's going to go. All right, so it is the 100th year. So the Bears are the most dominant team you've ever seen. That was my seen. opinion, and uh, – I'm not sure what the panel, how it will end up coming. We vote for a top 50, and then they'll come up with the top 100 out of that. But I've never seen a team dominate like those Bears did. What's the best offense you've ever seen? Never mind stats, but an offense the that Patriots was terrifying. The 2007, uh, or even though they lost on the miraculous David Tyree catch setting up Plaxico Burris' touchdown. I still think that was the greatest. That was the greatest offensive team I've ever seen, with Brady throwing to Moss. Rams. What about them? Rams. But yes, that was a great offense. There's been Steelers were loaded with Hall of Famers when mm-hmm. they won four Super Bowls. Um, to me, a great offense got to be able to run and pass. And the Rams, of course, had had incredible running game with Marshall Falk. Remember when the Vikings blew it and didn't get to the Super Bowl? They were 15-1. and one. Incredible. And they had the highest-scoring team in history. The 83 Redskins were the highest-scoring team in history, and they got blasted by the Raiders. So, to me, to be considered the greatest, you have to win a championship. But that – that and, and to me, the most overrated team that I didn't put in my top five was the unbeaten Dolphins. 
and overrated. Overrated. How could you overrate perfection? They were overrated. You go back over all those games and look at them. They were overrated. They're close. They go crazy when anybody says that, but. But John, you got to give them credit for running. Look, well, I'm I put no them Dolphin in my fan. top ten, but I didn't put them in my top five. I will say this: when I lived there, I had the pleasure of of meeting a, a bunch of those guys, like Manny Fernandez. I worked with Jim Mandich a few times. He was a tight end for that team, and so I got to like those guys, and I understood those guys. And to meet Coach Shula, that's pretty special as well. Of course, I, I just it's funny because there's all this historic stuff going on, historical stuff with the 100th birthday of the league, and. Don Shula is such a fascinating character in this game because he still leads by a long way in all-time victories, right? Interesting you said characters. We had to pick characters. Okay. And then we had to pick the greatest coaches. It was very, it was fascinating. They gave us examples of mm-hmm. records and biggest plays, best teams. It was fun to do. It took a long time. What about greatest coaches? Uh uh, I mean, Shula's got more wins than anybody. Okay, I get it that he didn't win as many championships. Lombardi is the number one. Is the greatest Still. Coach. Five championships, totally transform, transformed a franchise and a city. And uh, it was pretty easy to pick top ten because there's so many great ones. And, and I don't even remember who I picked second. And uh, Shula, of course, in the top three or four, along with Noel, Walsh, Landry, Paul Brown. You know, George Halas was in the yeah. top ten. There. I mean, you got to go back. It, it was a fascinating, and I can't wait to see when this comes out to see how it ended up. Really, you can't go wrong. My greatest game ever, and I've seen a lot of them, I went and put the championship game between the Colts and Giants, first overtime game, because it ch- transformed interest in the NFL from college football to pro football. But, man, I thought how many times I was at games and covered great, like the catch. So you were at the catch. We talked about that recently. I think recently. that was number two. I might have had the ice ball number three. I had Tyrese catch, even though it wasn't a touchdown. Is one of the, is like top five. What are, all right, so games you were at, though. Were you at San Diego, Miami, 41-38 overtime? Uh, no. I watched okay. it, but I was not there. And uh, But it, it's just amazing. That was the same year as the catch, actually. The uh, San Diego, Miami, 41-38 overtime. A game that really doesn't get talked about at all anymore, and a lot of people thought that was the greatest game they ever it saw. It was a fabulous game. What everybody re- I remember the hook and ladder with Tony Nathan, but yep. everybody remembers Kellen Winslow being helped off the field, right. totally exhausted after having one of the greatest games in history. 24 nothing lead, the Chargers. Dolphins go ahead. Chargers tie it, win it in overtime. I think a cut, I think each field goal kicker missed kicks in the extra the session. Immaculate receptions right up there, you know, that it's just amazing. The ghost holy roller. The, if it's got a nickname, you knew it was big. Uh as far as the uh, coaching thing goes, one more for you here. Shula was with the Colts and he loses the Super Bowl to Namath and the Jets, but then goes to the Dolphins and he's in the Jets division and torments them for a long time. It's just kind of an interesting dynamic to me that he was in that fray. But he started out as a young guy. That's why he's got so many wins. He started so young in the coaching profession. He was one of the youngest head coaches. I don't think he was as young as John Madden was, but he was. And, of course, he coached forever, and that's the reason he's uh, is the all-time winningest coach. And I don't see anybody passing him up today the way coaches have quick hooks. Yeah, John, Maybe Belichick will catch him. John, what's going on in the Houston Chronicle? Well, let's see. It's a slack time of the year. I've got a uh, a uh, podcast up, got a chat up, uh, have a Facebook Live up, and uh, and I'm probably going to take a few days off from writing, and we'll start writing again next week. 
All right, John. Thank you, thanks Mark. a lot. Have a great weekend. The General John McClain joining us most Thursdays here on Texans All Access. And next week, we'll let you know. Next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit different. Some vacation time. We'll have some great interviews for you. We've got a lot of stuff. A lot of acorns that we've stored up for this time. And you never know what kind of news breaks, if any. We really don't know. But we'll let you know. Of course we will. Now let's get to Buddy Howe. Buddy Howe, a running back who went to FAU, spent a little time with the Miami Dolphins, but then was released. Texans got him right before the start of the season. He paid dividends on special teams almost instantly. Drew Doherty had a chance to visit with Buddy Howe. Special teams as a whole last year made drastic improvements. It's, it's one of the best this franchise has ever had, and they had been pretty bad before that. You were second on the team in special teams tackles. How much pride do you take in that, knowing where you came from and your journey to the NFL? Being a competitor, come from Dallas South, that's all we do is compete. So, like, accepting the role that I was in, I'm not going to just sit there and try to just make my way through. But I was going to have fun and try to make a play any way possible because what you out there for? Just going out there having fun with the group, which is why we had so much success, because we had fun together and just making plays, you know. That competitive edge is just something that just pushed me along the way, so... Just going out there and make a tackle. I'm going to do something if that's my job. How do you build on that? Try to stack. You try to beat what you did last year. You continue to compete with your teammates. And we competed with each other in the game. Like, like who's going to go down and get this? Like, that's how we kept each other up. We wanted to be the one to make the tackle. And I built off that because how am I making an impression for the next year? You know, you can't just stay the same. You can't go down. You want to stack that up so then the organization tends to love you and want to keep you around. So that's the way to keep your name in the business. Who are you saying that with? Who's going to make this tackle? Uh, it'd be A.J. Moore. It'd be P.K. It could be Batty. It could be Joe. Like, But mostly it'd be like me and A.J. because me and A.J. in the interior and P.K. So That's not a coincidence that the four names you just reeled off, those are the four leaders. Yeah, those guys, the ones in the interior, we like, yeah, we got to run down. That's our job to go cause havoc and get to the ball. Without that in mind, how much do you actually want to carry the ball on offense? Honestly, I got to the point where I accepted my role. Carrying the ball would be a bonus to me. If they had given the opportunity to put the organization in my hands and carry the ball, I'd be grateful for it. So I am not really looking for that because it's a mindset thing. If you know your role, you'll never have yourself in a hole where you think like, oh, I should get the ball, I should get the ball. I don't want to have that feeling. I don't want to have that mindset. So I just focus on what they told me to come in and focus on, that special team. But I ain't going to lie, if I get the ball, you know, being a running back, it's up and popping. You know, that's going to be something, you know, a little extra, little juice for me. So, like, I have no number for it. I just want the opportunity. But I'm not saying I'm begging for it. I'm just going to go out there and make my tackles, you know, block on kick, I return, block on punt return, all that stuff, and do what I got to do. But, hey, they give me the rock. Hey, it's, that's a bonus for me. What's the mindset when you're flying downfield and you got a guy in your sights? You're not going to block me. Watch out. It's really like, get out of my way. Like, what you doing? That's kind of like how I think of it because it's opponent. Somebody that's trying to stop you. So I'm really just, look, I don't really look at my opponent. I look past them. You practice so much to what this stuff just second nature. So, like, moves and stick and getting in and out. But, you know, when we had them double teams, that's when I'm like, all right, so I got to take one for the team to release somebody else on my team. So it's a team it's a team sport. So when I take them double teams on, I'm just like, hey, I'm going to cause a lot of havoc so I can, like, really make those guys come to me. And then my whoever um, is running off of me has a free lane. So it's a give and take. I really just run down, man, like a little kid. To be honest, I'm like, hey, I'm flying down. It's a chance to run fast. Everybody love to run fast. Where's the Buddy nickname come from? My mom was pregnant with me. She was watching another professor. Buddy Love. Come on, my little buddy. And, like, she was calling me that since I was a baby. And the funny thing about it, once I got to college, she didn't think it was going to stick. And then coaches asked me what they want me to call me. I was like, buddy. And then when I got to the NFL, nobody don't even know my real name. It's Gregory. So I was like, it was like, what you want to put on a roster? I was like, buddy, how? Because it's a, you know, for me, it's a marketing thing because it's something that stands out. And that's what everybody called me. That's what everybody know me for. So I just stuck with buddy, how? And it's pretty dope. So what's the goal for 2019 for you? 
go out there and play fast, have fun, help the team get more wins, continue to like, you know, build this culture with the team. Obviously, make more tackles than I did last year. She had what I caused one fumble, so caused another fumble that I did last year. Just do something different. Just try to make an impact play. Honestly, like everybody want to have that moment and that shine, but I'm gonna find my moment and that shine, my shine from an impact play. Something that just changed the whole game or just changed the whole momentum. That's what you shoot for because those type of moments is something that give your team a lot of juice. And once your team all juiced up, nobody can stop it. So my goal is just to go out there and be me, be the same person I am, and compete each and every rep and play fast. Play fast and be that person that the people around me can trust at every moment. Buddy Hal with Drew Doherty on Texans All Access and a young player, but we've got even younger ones. Rookies trying to make their way onto this team. I brought up my favorite tweet of the week. This did not make likes and stuff because it happened, I think it was yesterday or the day before, but the rookies were at the YMCA, the Houston Texans YMCA on MLK, and they did a rookie splash bash. I forget exactly what they called it. It's all part of Texans Care and Champions for Youth. But the rookies were in the pool with the kids, and it is priceless stuff. Go to the Houston Texans Twitter account, check out some of the pics, or on the website, HoustonTexans.com. We also did a video on this, and I tweeted something out. Because the kids are hanging all over these players and in the pool, and they're just having a good time in the summer sun. And I just said something like, looks like the Texans fans at the Houston Texans YMCA approve of the rookie class. Yes, they do. It's all about the kids, seeing them so happy, seeing these young guys get baptized in the NFL on the field, what they've gone through with this whole offseason program, and then they get to play with these kids, and it just looked like a whole bunch of fun, so go check it out. Yes, it's a feel-good thing. So what? I can hear some of you eye-rolling out there. You stop it right now. This is a professional football team that won 11 games last year, and the guys do have some fun off the field, too, and do good things for the community as well. All right, like I said, we're in that long break between minicamp and training camp that I call the desert. It hasn't been that dry, though. Some things have been happening. happening. Plenty of conversation about what's happening with this football team. Don't forget, July 25th, team goes to camp. We'll be out there at the Houston Methodist Training Center presenting you all our training camp programming, and the guys from Sports Radio 610 will be broadcasting out there as well. I'm going to be on with Mike and Seth, 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. We'll be back on the air with Johnny Harris tomorrow at 6 and don't forget about Texans 360, Saturday night, ABC 13, 11 o'clock. I am the guest of Drew Doherty on that show, and he asked me back. I must have done something right. I don't know why, but he asked me back for this week's episode. So let's do it Saturday night, 11 o'clock on ABC 13. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. Have a great night, and go Texans.